I want to share with you just a, a brief story before I begin. On the way to church to make his first confession, a nervous seven-year-old grandson asked his grandmother what he could expect. Confession is where you tell all the bad things you've done to the priest. He looked relieved. Good. I haven't done anything bad to the priest. Tonight, we are going to continue a series I began on Wednesday. This is Power in the Blood, Part 2. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of teaching about the blood of Christ, and as a result of it, most people don't understand the spiritual significance of the blood. By the very title, we are telling you that there is power, tapped power in the blood, and we need to know how to release it. So turn to Leviticus 17.11. This is the foundational text for the series, Leviticus 17.11. I'll do a little bit of review for those of you who weren't here. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. So what we see here is the life of all flesh is in the blood. That means that we need blood to sustain us. Blood is actually referred to as lifeblood because it causes you to have life. So it is vital to our existence. If you have no blood, you have no life. Now, we learned last time that God formed Adam's body from the dust of the ground. But in that state, that body had no life to it until God breathed into it. The Bible says when God breathed into his body, it gave him life. All of a sudden, blood became vitalized inside of him. And here's the great news. The same life that God had inside of him was now imparted into Adam's blood. I want you to think of how significant that is. He walked upon the earth with God's life resident in his blood. We then discovered that every single person on this planet shares the same blood that Adam had. It can all go back to him. So if God's life was resident in Adam's blood, then technically if you share that blood, then you would have that life in you. However, Adam ended up committing sin. He ended up, as a result of bowing down to Satan, received death into his life, and that life of God left. His blood became tainted or polluted by sin. So as a result, since Adam's blood was tainted or polluted by sin, then we now share that same tainted, polluted blood that Adam had. So God needed a plan to purify our blood. We needed a blood transfusion. So he chose Jesus to redeem us from our sins and cleanse our blood. Now, we learned last time that Jesus, it was vital that Jesus be born of a virgin. A lot of people never thought about why. Why did he have to be born of a virgin? Because the male is the one that transfers blood 
to the child when the egg is fertilized, not the woman. As a result, uh, Mary, her egg was never fertilized. So she never had tainted blood in that child. Where did Jesus' blood come from then? Directly from his heavenly Father. Think about that. Jesus walked around with untainted blood. He had the same original blood that Adam initially had when he was created. So let's pick up with some new stuff tonight. Go over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which would be Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So the only two God-men that ever had pure blood were Adam and Jesus. Now, I want you to think about what that pure blood would enable you to do. If we look at the life of Jesus, who walked around with this pure, untainted, unpolluted blood, we see nowhere in the Bible where Jesus ever had sickness, where he ever had a cold, where he ever had a headache. There was such virtue in his blood, he could touch lepers and heal them. He was so filled with life, he could touch a blind man and they could see, touch a deaf person and they would get hearing because he had that life of God inside of him. Adam's blood at first had life in it. His blood originally had the ability to resist any kind of injury or infection until he became polluted. I want you to see the original intent of what God wanted for you, how he wanted you to walk on this earth. That's why Jesus said, I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. I came to give you an impartation of my blood. So imagine if you received a transfusion of Jesus' blood. Think about the possibilities it would be impossible for you to contract a bacterial or viral infection or any disease, for that matter, if Jesus' blood flowed through you. His blood was charged with life. And I like this statement. Jesus' blood had preventative and curative power. Let me say that again. Jesus' blood had preventative and curative power. So it would prevent things from coming upon you, and if something did, then it would cure you. I want that blood. What would happen if you had that kind of life in you? Your body would heal so quickly that you wouldn't even know you were sick. You can have it by faith. With God's power in your blood, you can live a long, healthy life upon this earth before you go to heaven. Go over to 1 Peter 1, and let's look at verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture because I want you to see this in the Word. I want you to see the plan that God has for you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, ordinary blood is corruptible. We learned that as soon as you die, within minutes, your body starts to decompose because you have corruptible blood inside of you. The Bible says here, we're not redeemed by anything corruptible. Jesus's blood was incorruptible. When Jesus said, drink my blood, we learned last week that it offended people. They walked away from you. We're not going to drink your blood. What are you talking about? What they didn't understand was that he was saying, there is divine life in my blood. He was and is life, and he wanted you to partake of that life. The absolute divine life of God was pumping through the veins of a sin-free human being, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. In fact, this was such a revelation that the very first sermon preached after Jesus was resurrected was by Peter, and I want you to see what Peter preached. Go over to Acts 2, 26 and 27. Acts 2, 26 and 27. When Peter preached this, he was preaching to the Jews. Remember, at that point, it's so new, there isn't technically any Christians yet. This is kind of the beginning of the church. And in Acts 2.26, it says, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you let your Holy One to see corruption. This is speaking of Jesus. He says his flesh is glad because not only are you not going to leave me in hell, but here's what I want you to see. I will not see corruption. There was no corruption of the Messiah's flesh. And as a result of that, that spoke volumes to the Jewish people. In fact, they were so amazed that that day, as a result of hearing this, 3,000 Jews immediately got saved. Paul preached a similar message. Go over to Acts 13, 35. Acts 13, 35. It says, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, the Amplified says it this way, you will not allow your Holy One to see putrefaction and disillusion from the grave. So God would not allow His Holy One, speaking of Jesus, to undergo the putrefaction or dissolution of the grave. Again, this is the most convincing fact to the Jewish people that Jesus had to be the Messiah. He had to be the Son of God because everyone's body sees decomposition once they die. Jesus did not have corruptible Adamic 
blood. After Jesus' death, his body did not decompose. That was astounding to them. It was a different scenario with Lazarus. Lazarus is in the grave for almost four days, and they're like, hey, don't mess with him. By now, his body stinks. Why? Because decomposition had already taken place. He, he didn't have heaven's blood in him. So the normal putrefaction and dissolution had begun. Think about Jesus. For three days, his body lay on a slab of stone in the hot temperatures of Israel. This is a land with livestock in the streets, a place infested with flies and disease. His body didn't swell. His flesh did not smell. In fact, when Mary found Jesus very much alive, he was physically sound. This is concrete proof that Jesus had no sin or death in his blood. I want you to see the reality of the power in that blood. Go over to Mark 15. 15. And let's look at, let's go back a little bit in time and see what Jesus had to go through in order to provide us that power in that blood. In Matthew 15, 15, it's talking about before Jesus is crucified, he's brought before Pilate, and it says, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. I'm not going to go through the whole process of what the scourging process was. Uh, We've done that already. But I want you to see that Jesus came to this earth as our lifeline from heaven. We needed him. It wasn't like he didn't have anything better to do. There was a plan. There was divine life inside, flowing inside of his body. And in order to release heaven's life on this earth, he had to submit his back to the brutal scourge of jagged pieces of bone and metal on a whip. He willingly allowed his back to be raked open so that healing would flow to us. Eternal life was then transported to the earth because with every cruel blow, that divine life and that blood released into the atmosphere. He brought divine life onto this planet. Jesus' body was poured out into the air and then eventually showered upon the human race. Imagine his heart as this is going on. It's probably racing at a rate of 200 beats per minute, maybe more. And it's pushing this blood out of his body. It's said that he spent over six hours with his back flayed open while his throbbing heart pumped his precious life out of him. This life-giving blood then ran over his earthly body with each beat. It sprayed into the atmosphere of the planet and dripped onto the dust of the ground. Now I want you to show, show you something significant 
between him and Adam, God formed the original Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into him, but this life was lost. Now through the second Adam, this same life is now back on the earth. The life of God, you need to understand, is an actual, eternal, heavenly substance. It's not some philosophical comment or principle that we preach from a pulpit. It is real. It is the very real, tangible life of God that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, had pumping through his veins. Look at Revelation 22.1. Revelation 22.1. This is something we have to look forward to in the future that John saw. He was given privilege to see. And it says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this river of life was channeled into this world through the heart and the veins of Jesus Christ. You can receive that same life when you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you make him master and Lord of your life. You then tap into that same divine life. Now go over to John 1, and I want to make another parallel between the blood and the divine life that was imparted to both Adam and Jesus. In John 1, looking at verses 1 and 4 through 5. John 1, 1 and 4 through 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, for those of you who have not heard this before, that word is referring to Jesus Christ. We can prove that if you go to verse 14. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among the earth. So in the beginning, the Trinity was God the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. He does not become the Son of God till he is manifested on the earth. Now, verses 4 and 5. In him, so we're still speaking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So according to this, the blood of Jesus is luminous. It lights up. That's important because the Bible says that darkness cannot comprehend the light. Notice God's life is light. So God's breath of life went into Adam's blood, and it literally lit him up. You know, we sing that song, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Yeah. Why? Because when the life of God enters you, you should be different. It should light you up. People should see something different about you. If there isn't, wonder if you need a new battery. Your light burnt out. See, God's breath of life went into Adam's blood. It lit him up. Now, you need to understand there's two different kinds of life. There's biological life and divine or spiritual. 
life. Go over to Romans 8 2. Romans 8 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The, the spiritual life that was in Jesus makes us free from spiritual death. When Adam committed the first sin, God said, If you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. He didn't die spiritually that day, or I'm sorry, he didn't die physically that day, he died spiritually. And as a result of spiritual death, he ultimately had physical death. When we commit sin, we die spiritually, and we need to be revived. Now, John 1, go over to John 1, and let's look at 4 and 5 again. We've looked at it, I want to look at it a little bit closer. John 1, 4, and 5 says, In him was life. Everyone say life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. If you will allow me, which whether you do or not, I'm going to do it. Uh, let's replace the word comprehend with apprehend or arrest. So instead of comprehend, let's say apprehend or arrest. So we could say it this way, the darkness did not apprehend it, or darkness could not arrest it. So according to this, light, whether it's natural or spiritual, always overpowers darkness. You understand that? Light always overpowers darkness. We could turn all the light. It could be pitch dark in here. And if someone just holds up one candle, that one candle overpowers all the darkness in the room. You are to walk in the light. Now go over to Genesis 1, and let's look at a couple other things tonight. Because when I think of light, I always go back to the beginning. I always think of this one scripture. In Genesis 1-3, as God is creating things, it says in Genesis 1-3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So a lot of times we preach at just showing the power of God's word. He spoke things into existence. But let's look at exactly what happened. It says, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, light literally can refer to luminance. So we have light in this room, which allows us to see. But figuratively, it can indicate everything that is good, happy, filled with joy, or wholesome. So something good, happy, filled with joy, or wholesome. So when God says, let there be light, suddenly the whole universe erupts into being. The stars begin to shine, and the heavens reverberate with joy and gladness. Let there be light could also be said, let this universe be filled with goodness. Let this universe be filled with power. Let this universe be filled with joy. And there was light. As a result, 
the darkness gives way to light and joy. The darkness gives way to light and joy. If you have light, then no darkness can come into you. Satan is often referred to as the prince of darkness, where God is referred to as the father of lights. Let's look at a couple other things. Go over to John 8, 12. John 8, 12. Jesus is speaking, and he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Notice according to this, light is life. So he is the light that shines in the darkness, and as a result, the darkness couldn't arrest him. The darkness could not stop him. He had a mission, and he was intent on fulfilling it. Why do we allow darkness to stop us sometimes from doing what God has called us to do? If he's the light, we are the light. Darkness cannot overpower light. Look at John 1.4. John 1.4. For the third time we're looking at this because I'm pounding it into you. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus' blood was full of life and glory. If it had God's life in it, then it also has God's light in it. So we see that light and the blood go hand in hand. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Are you ready? God's light torments demons. God's light torments demons. We're talking about power in the blood. Let's look at one last scripture. Go over to Luke 4, 33 and 34. Luke 4, 33 and 34. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of, of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, devils cried out in pain in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because demons like to operate in darkness. They like to operate in hidden areas. And Jesus radiated blinding, brilliant, spiritual light. He showed up, and it was like there was headlights right in their eyes. They knew who he was. I want you to understand, every born-again believer has the same spiritual light. When you walk down the street, demons should see a blinding light and know, oh, there's a Christian. Can't mess with them. Better go to someone else. We have the ability to torment 
demons. Jesus had liquid light flowing through his veins. And if you are a part of him, if he's in you and you're in him, then you operate with that exact same light. Amen.